Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Guglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Brian Radbill. Dr. Radbill is a Chief Medical Officer at Mount Sinai Morningside, which is located in Manhattan and is a leading healthcare provider for West Harlem and Morningside Heights. It offers a level two trauma center as well. Dr. Radbill is board certified in internal medicine and nephrology and specializes in chronic kidney disease. He's also an associate professor of medicine in nephrology at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So Dr. Radbill, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So one of my favorite professors, uh, Dr. Stephen Sozio at Hopkins, when I was a medical student there, also specialized in nephrology. And I asked him a question of what got him interested in that field in particular, since it's fairly esoteric for the average layperson. And he mentioned the fact it's the most first principles-esque of the, of the health professions. I'd love to hear what you, you know, more about your background and what got you interested in becoming a physician and then nephrology. Sure. So I, uh, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I went to the University of Michigan. Actually, I was a, a, an English major. I think for a very brief period of time, I thought about being a writer, maybe a journalist. But um, my father was a physician, so I think medicine was kind of in my blood. So after college, uh, I went to medical school at uh, Hahnemann in Philadelphia. It's now Drexel. I was the last Hahnemann class, so I had the distinction of shutting down that medical school. When you're in medical school, you start thinking about you know whether or not you want to go into medicine versus surgery, and then other things like pediatrics and emergency medicine and radiology. I think those are more like callings. But for the most of us, it's either medicine versus surgery. I ended up choosing medicine because I didn't really want to be proceduralist. I think that plays a part in how I ended up being a nephrologist because I came to Mount Sinai after medical school to do my residency in internal medicine. And very early on, I really thought that I wanted to specialize. But I didn't want to cath, bronch, or scope anything. You know, cardiologists do cardiac catheterizations, pulmonologists do bronchoscopies, and everyone knows what GI doctors do. So I used to, I used to joke and say, you know, I don't want to cath bronch or scope. I don't want to cath anything bronch or scope and bronch anything cath or scope and so on and so forth. So that left more the cognitive uh, specialties. And to be honest, I chose nephrology because I think it scared me the most. It's, it's very challenging. I think a lot of people, when you talk about salt and water balance and acid-base disorders and electrolytes and, and dialysis. These are hard concepts. And I just thought if I could become a nephrologist and I, I had a lot of nephrology kind of mentors, this was something that would always challenge me and make me really, I think, get kind of the nuts and bolts of, of kind of how a very complex organ works. So that's what led me to nephrology. I actually became the medical director of our dialysis program. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got at least the beginning of my career. I, I love that pathway. I mean, obviously, I have a large audience of, of medical students and work with Michigan and among other health professional schools. Uh, we have a ton of students at Drexel, as an example. And I'd never heard that, uh, that framework for if you're going to go into internal medicine, you want to avoid the procedurals, cath, rock, and scope. So I'll have to pick, make a note of that. Now, you know, you've transitioned from being uh, someone who's 100% clinical care into being the, the chief medical officer of a, of a large health, uh, health system. Would love to hear more about that transition and, and what the leadership role has been like. Again, I came to Mount Sinai right after medical school. This is 1998. After my residency, I stayed on to do a nephrology fellowship at Sinai. Really wanted to stay on at Mount Sinai. It's an academic medical center. I really love the people there. And I tried my hand at research. I started doing research in the kind of 
last two years of my fellowship. And I, I kind of knew it wasn't really meant for me that I was not the kind of person that was going to be, you know, at the bench doing experiments. And as I told someone later, you know, I, I was a wildly successful researcher. If you think that publishing one paper in nine years is wildly successful. So pretty quickly, I realized that that wasn't going to be for me. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do at that point. I, I actually thought I might have to leave Sinai and go into private practice. And there was an opportunity for me to take over the dialysis program. The medical director of our hemodialysis program actually had the opportunity to become the chief medical officer for the National Kidney Foundation. And when he left, I kind of threw my hat in the ring. And what I think became, at least at the time, kind of a pattern for me, I, I would volunteer for the administrative slash quality type roles that I guess not a lot of people were really interested in at the time. So, you know, I said, you know, I'd like to be the medical director of the dialysis program. They gave me the opportunity. Again, I'm not sure who else wanted to do it, but that was kind of my first entree into performance improvement and quality and patient safety and also pay for performance and value-based purchasing, which was, you know, very kind of early on in the dialysis world, they were looking at metrics and, and, and performance metrics. So after doing that for a little while, I got more and more interested in quality and safety, kind of moved up the ranks, was given the opportunity to be the vice chair of quality for the Department of Medicine, in which I really started to learn a little more about, you know, what quality and patient safety mean. And I did that for a while and I loved it, but I, I always felt like I would kind of get to a certain point. And then when issues went outside my department, I kind of had to stop there. I couldn't really cross into other departments and change things the way I wanted to. And so I had the good fortune of having the opportunity to become a chief medical officer at Mount Sinai, Queens, which was before Mount Sinai became a true health system. And that was a small hospital in Astoria where I learned just a ton about hospital administration, quality, safety, medical staff, and just really learning how to be a chief medical officer. And then that led to my coming to Mount Sinai Morningside, uh, which is formerly Mount Sinai St. Luke's. And I've been here for about four years. I think you had a question about just being what a CMO is and how it's different. So, I mean, I guess the kind of elevator speech is that as a chief medical officer, I feel it's my job to ensure the care and safety of every patient that you know we manage, whether it's an inpatient, an ED patient, one of one of our clinics or faculty practices. But really, at the end of the day, I think it's it's about creating a kind of unrivaled patient experience, and to do that, you have to focus on making sure that the care that all of your you know providers and staff are are, are creating is safe, is of the highest quality. And they provide it in a culture and a manner that really shows that we're patient-centered. The best way I ever heard explained to me was a, a physician named Elliot Lazar, who was actually at New York Presby, passed away several years ago, but he oversaw this uh, clinical quality fellowship program that I did. And he said that, you know, quality is more the good stuff and patient safety is less of the bad stuff. And really that's what I'm just trying to do is to put our staff, our providers in the right position with the right leadership and the right guidance to provide more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. I like that as well, the, the, that dichotomy there of how they could work together. Another pseudo mentor of mine when I was in, in med school was Peter Pernovost, who obviously uh, is really well known in quality improvement and patient safety. 
is around like listening to his lectures where I started reading a lot about patient safety and you know medical error being I think the third leading cause of death in hospitals right now behind heart attacks and, and cancer, I believe. I would love to hear some of the things you're most proud of as far as implementing things for patient safety or quality improvement at Morningside or, or, or in general. Yeah. And just to go back for a second, I mean, in hospitals, the leading cause by far is sepsis of, of inpatient mortality. And, and the reason I bring that up is only because there's been a ton of work, especially in New York State and others, to stop sepsis and early detection systems and early goal-directed therapy. And that's a great example, actually, of some of the kind of work uh, that I've been involved with and others trying to ensure that you know, patients are being identified and being treated in a way that kind of complies whatever the standard of care is in you know, 2020. And very similar, I think, when you mentioned, you know, goodness about you know, checklists and kind of doing things kind of in a structured, you know, standard work way. So some of the things that that I'm personally pleased with and the, and the work that we've done, you know, over the years in quality, and, and this is kind of all pre, pre-COVID, I assume. Yeah, pre-COVID. You know, I mean, I think in general, the work that I've been really excited about is uh, trying to build up teams on all of our units so that they're not just inpatient units with clinical nurse managers, but also physician leaders, you know, unit medical directors that can partner as these kind of dyads that work together to continuously improve you know, care in the unit. And something that I've been really interested in is just about throughput and patient flow. You know, We talk a lot about the clinical operations of a hospital and uh, quality and safety, but at the end of the day, getting patients admitted to a bed from the emergency department get them the care they need in a timely and safe way, and then have them safely discharged, a successful transition of care. It's not as simple as just, you know, admitting them, writing some orders, getting some tests, giving some medications, then someone leaves. There's so many things that go into that. And when a hospital, especially a busy hospital in Manhattan, starts to have issues with patient flow, it leads to safety concerns, at least quite frankly, unsafe situations like congestion in our emergency department and long wait times. And then if you're not ensuring that patients have you know, safe transition of care, then you have high readmission rates and patients come back when they don't necessarily need to because you haven't maybe addressed the medications that they're leaving on or some of the social issues that they're dealing with. So for me, I think that's been a lot of my interest and focus is how do we optimize patient flow kind of from start to finish through a hospital? How do we move care upstream to the best that we can with population health. But once they're here, how do we ensure that we're doing everything to move them safely through the system? And so that's kind of been a, a real passion of mine. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, like how, like if you extend it beyond the walls of the hospital, how how much the funnel extends. Uh, one of our other guests was the chief uh, clinical officer at Providence, Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, who you may uh, may have interacted with at some point, but she was on this uh, Raiseline podcast and she was talking about even well after a patient is discharged, trying to circle back with them and getting PROs, patient reported outcomes, as opposed to just the patient satisfaction right after, just so you can go back and see what interventions you had while they were in the hospital or even upstream population health, as you mentioned, and how they were feeling, you know, if they had that hip surgery, are they actually able to walk with less pain uh, and improve their activities of daily living? So is that something that you all are investing in too, the PROs or? You know, it's interesting. Obviously, we look for readmissions within 30 days. And in some circles, we're looking for outcomes further out. But I think it's an opportunity for us. I don't think that's something that we're necessarily really focused on beyond that 30 days. A lot of times you're looking at kind of your inpatient mortality rate, your patient experience, 
And the readmissions up to 30 days is kind of about the standard. We started looking actually at seven-day readmission rates because we kind of feel like those are patients where if you get readmitted and it's an unplanned remission within seven days, then that really is something that we could have done better. You know, sometimes someone gets discharged, they come back, you know, three weeks later, it could be a completely separate issue. But I think it's an opportunity, you know, when we really start thinking about, you know, long-term, you know, what kind of care are we providing? You know, what's our outcome? The hospital for many patients, hopefully it's just an episode in a longer care plan. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Now, switching gears, I mean, you mentioned COVID. This is the reason we launched the Raise Line podcast is to talk about how to increase and improve healthcare capacity during COVID and beyond. So we'd love to hear, you know, you being uh, at a hospital or health system that's in the epicenter, the former epicenter of anymore. COVID. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How was that experience? I mean, going back to February, March, uh, preparing, making sure that you're clinicians as well as the patients taken care of? So, you know, it's interesting. Before, when you asked me about being a chief medical officer, some of the departments that typically report up to a CMO are things like quality, risk management, and patient safety, uh, the medical staff office, but also infection prevention control, and for me, respiratory therapy. And those last two, I think, really came to the forefront during COVID. COVID was something that, you know, we'd never dealt with before. And I, as the chief medical officer, there was a discussion with myself and our chief operating officer that when things started to pick up, we activated the hospital incident command uh, system. And this, you know, really is something where you have an incident management team with an incident commander and several other leadership roles. And we discussed that because this was, you know, very much a pandemic is kind of right up a physician's alley in, in some respects, that I would be the incident commander. So all I can tell you is that starting sometime in March, and it wasn't like the pandemic, like one day you wake up and okay, it's all hands on deck. It was kind of a, a slow and then it kind of rapidly gained pace. So myself and others were in this command center. And I remember that we started getting some patients that you know, we thought might have COVID, we test them, the testing was negative. And you know, to be honest, we, we didn't have a ton of information at the beginning. You know, we didn't quite understand the disease. We definitely didn't know how contagious it was gonna be. But the challenge with COVID is that you know, on, on March 14th at 5.30 p.m., I remember exactly where I was, I got the phone call that said, hey, we just got our first uh, two positive patients at the same time. That was on March 14th. In less than four weeks, we had 285 COVID positive patients in my hospital. And to put it into perspective, Mount Sunday Morningside is about a 300 bed hospital. So we essentially went from being a, a normal adult med surge, you know, level two trauma center, providing a variety of care to a variety of patients to a hospital that functions solely to treat COVID patients. And we had to completely redo our entire clinical operation and how we provide a care, the staff that we use to provide care, the space that we provide care in order to accommodate these patients. I mean, just a couple things that we started, you know, first, you know, we started to look for ways to increase our negative pressure capacity because the theory was that, you know, you like these patients in a room that's negative pressure because again, the way it's spread, we're not so sure if everyone should bring N95s or surgical masks and things like that. And then we realized that, you know, we need more space, right? We had to surge into areas that previously were, were not used for med surge patients. 
and our critical care space. We had to basically create ICU beds outside of our traditional ICU footprint. It was something where the information was coming in rapidly. The patient volume was skyrocketing and we had to keep kind of learning and doing things somewhat on the fly. And it was a, a real team effort. I mean, I have to say every single person stepped up in the hospital. We met every challenge and, and it was stressful. There was a, a real sense of, okay, we need to do this. We tried something, it didn't work. Let's go back and try it again. And there's tons of examples and I get into some of them if you like, but it was just really interesting. Yeah, I think we'd love to hear one or two examples that stand out and as well as what you think are some of the lasting changes that your your health system will make as a result of COVID. I mean, we obviously aren't out of the woods yet, but you know, moving forward, not just this coming year, but in the years to come, what are some of the lasting changes you all think you will have kept as a result of COVID? In the beginning, our, our focus was on putting in these you know, negative pressure rooms, which you realize at a certain point that you know, it just wasn't possible to put every patient in a negative pressure room, and it probably wasn't even necessary in some cases. But what we definitely needed to do was to create more space for med surge patients, but also for critical care. And for critical care patients, at first we thought that we could put these patients on some of our cardiac telemetry floors. Cardiac telemetry floors are, are patient rooms that you know, have heart monitors. Well, what we found was that when we put critical care COVID patients in these rooms, well, our doors, they're all fireproof doors. They don't have windows. So next thing you know, we had patients inside rooms on ventilators with the door shut. That's not a safe situation. Any IC that you go to, you walk in, it's usually these kind of glass you know, doors that you can close. The nurses can see their patients at all times. They can only see the patient, but they can also see the bedside monitor, they can see the ventilator. If anything goes wrong, they can immediately rush in. So we figure out, or we, or we tried to figure out ways to see inside the rooms. And to be honest, we started doing it with AV monitors and then Google Nest devices and iPads. And we would actually have cameras in the room, one focus on the patient, one focus on the monitor. And then outside the rooms, we'd have iPads where we could look down at the monitors and see inside the room. We tried that for a little bit. Later, we, we realized that we could actually create almost like an anteroom where we could put almost like uh, once you open the door of the patient's room, if you went a little bit, we created with plexiglass a second door that could be closed, that could allow us to maintain the negative pressure inside the room, but would be direct line of sight for nurses and others to sit there like they're used to in an ICU and just look at the patients and look at the monitors. And that was something that it took us some time to come up with but that we have left in place. And if we have a significant second wave at Morningside, we now know how to do things, right? We now know what works. And we've actually have a whole series of units that have been outfitted and other units that we could quickly stand up, including our endoscopy suite, which we realized was, was a very nice setup and just with some almost like tarps that we could set this up and create negative pressure and also have line of sight. So that was, that was some of the kind of really creative, you know, let's try something. Okay, this doesn't work. Let's try it again. I, I think that was also a lot of the lessons learned for us about what works, what doesn't work. There was something else with codes. You know, we realized that when patients code, oftentimes team goes rushing into the room. They have to intubate someone. You know, they don't always have all the gear that they need, including N95 masks. And this was before we were using N95 masks for kind of everyone because it became so endemic. In, in different units. So, you know, someone had the idea of let's put 
N95s is part of the go bag for every for every code. And so in every unit, they just grab the bag and has all the supplies for providers to keep them safe. So again, just a lot of really unique things we were able to do. And I should mention that, you know, Mount Sinai Morningside is a lean hospital. We have chief transformation officer and uh, our president very engaged in lean. We have a lean lab. And during the pandemic, I was the instant commander. I had my instant management team. And we would sometimes say, you know, we've got a problem we need to quickly fix. And we would send some of our frontline providers and stakeholders into the lean lab with facilitators to problem solve and come up with new ways of doing things. Because again, we had to literally reinvent the way we provided care for a disease that the science and the knowledge was kind of changing almost on a daily basis. Yeah, those are fascinating examples. And that's that's really interesting. It's like the analogy is flying the plane as you build it. I know we're coming up on time. So I guess one question, I have two last questions. One is just, what do you think the lasting changes to the healthcare system, not just in Morningside, but the healthcare system will see as a result of COVID? I, I honestly don't know if we're wearing masks for the rest of our lives <laughs> or if we're going to shake hands again. I don't know. I do think one of the recognitions during the pandemic uh, that, that everyone identified was we've been spending years trying to move care upstream and to try and keep patients out of the hospital and to try and make the hospital footprint very small just for acute kind of urgent needs or elective surgical procedures. And during a pandemic, you, you can't prevent the need to suddenly have to you know surge up. So I do think that, you know, there's been a recognition that we really ideally need to have hospitals where a room can become an ICU, where, you know, is there a way that we can use technology to have the ability to quickly ramp up and expand our inpatient footprint to accommodate a sick patient, especially when it comes to critical care. We have a lot of critical care patients, probably close to twice our normal footprinting capacity at one time. And, you know, I do think there was also, uh, and again, many people have, have remarked upon this, more of a coordinated federal response, especially when it comes to PPE. I think there was a lot of hospitals and health systems feeling that they had to kind of do this on their own. Mount Sinai, I was very fortunate to be part of a health system that went through extraordinary lengths to ensure that we never ran out of PPE. But clearly there were other hospitals uh, that were not as well resourced. And I, I think that that was unfortunate and something that you know we really you know shouldn't let happen again. It shouldn't be something where you have to make choices like that. Yeah, I totally agree. We we had another guest in Raise Line, Mike Alkire, who's the head of Premier, which does supply chain uh, management for health systems and hospitals. And it's fascinating to hear like what he was talking about that for years there have been concerns around PPE availability and ventilator availability. And hopefully now we have a plan moving forward. I, I do want to say though, and, and again, you talk about the lasting changes. I think some of the things that I brought up, I mean, they're they're hard to fix, right? You can't just go through and redo every hospital room and the cost of facilities would be astronomical. But one of the things that I think was was really interesting and, and something that I think, we saw a trend of this before COVID, but it really got accelerated is telehealth, telemedicine. Even the fact that, you know, you and I right now, we're doing a Zoom call, you know, it's comfortable. It's, it's you know, every meeting now, you know, we can we can have meetings a lot faster. We can save time, just like every other business. Healthcare is, you know, no, not the only one for, for obvious reasons, but I think that the use of telehealth and telemedicine will definitely be something that hospitals continue to leverage. And I also think that virtual visits, right? So instead of having to go to the hospital to see your loved one in their hospital, but virtual visits were something that we did as well when the visitor restrictions were in place. 
And I actually think that that was a great way to bring families to the bedside and to make it easier on folks who maybe can't, you know, get there before a certain time, but wanted to check in. I would love to see that be something that we continue to grow as well. Definitely. I mean, that's a very consistent theme that's come up from health systems to uh, we had Joe Kvidar, the president of the American Telemedicine Association on, obviously spoke about the two fact, two order of magnitude increase in telehealth appointments. But yeah, so my last question for you is, I mean, given that you're a physician and you're a healthcare leader, what advice would you give to current and future healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and, and beyond? Say you're talking to an first year class at Drexel right now about your career, what advice would you give them? That's a great question. I think that even even before COVID, you know, people would ask me about would you want your kids to go into medicine? Would you tell someone to go into medicine? And the reality is, I mean, you can make a lot more money and have a lot less stress doing something else, right? There's a lot of opportunities out there, but I, I think you go into medicine maybe because you're drawn to it. And I personally find that medicine has always been the most interesting thing, just learning about, you know, how the human body works. And then, you know, later in my career, learning about just the challenges of healthcare delivery, right? I mean, first you understand how the body works, they understand what happens when it breaks down, and then you understand how you fix it. And now I've entered the part of my career where I'm trying to figure out, well, how do I make sure we fix it the right way every time, right? So I, I just think that medicine is challenging. It allows you to kind of be with other people that are most vulnerable and provide support, even if there's nothing you can do medically. So it's very emotionally gratifying, although it can be draining as well. But I will say that during the, the, the pandemic, I think what's become very clear is clarity of purpose. And I think that's something all during the pandemic for a lot of us, it was stressful, obviously, but in some ways exhilarating. And it just gave us all this, this sense of meaning. You really understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think that quite frankly, that's something that's lacking in a lot of other professions nowadays, but I never felt that way more. Than, than during the pandemic and being a part of a healthcare team. Those are some definitely some inspiring words to end on. So with that, Dr. Radville, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and obviously for all the work you do at Mount Sinai. Thank you so much. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.